chapter 1 of the book of Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king came to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave this country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shifrah and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. When the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. But some point in their lives, every believer asks this question. What is God doing in all this? Is he still working for good in my life? Now, of course, that's not just a personal question. It's one that God's people ask together collectively. During hard seasons, we ask, is God still working for good in his church? Is he still in control, particularly when things are hard for the Lord's people? And those kinds of questions about whether God is in control and ruling all things and working for good really are at the heart of the beginning of the book of Exodus. If you're new to Emmanuel, I see a number of visitors with us this morning, and we're delighted you're here. And we're starting this new series in this book. And at the beginning here of Exodus chapter 1, many years have passed since Jacob and took his family down to Egypt at the invitation of Pharaoh And when they got there, they were provided for so very generously. But that generation has now died and gone. And so, with the passage of time, 
And all the change that brings, the question for the people of God at the start of Exodus that Moses is addressing is how can they be sure that God is still with them and working to help and to bless them? And as we look together at chapter 1, coming at the very beginning of all the hardship and struggle that we know is going to work out through the book of Exodus, the answer to that question about whether God is with them and for them is a resounding yes. Now, sometimes I think we can read Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Some very well-known verses we'll come to in a couple of weeks as follows. This is Exodus 2, 23 to 25. We can hear these words. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with them, with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Sometimes we can read those verses and think that God had forgotten his people until we get to the end of chapter 2. And it's really important that we see that's not what has happened. God has been with them to this point. God has been working out his plan to rescue them from Egypt all the way through. And the end of chapter 2 is this turning point when the plan suddenly comes into into action, as it were, as God uh, begins to raise up Moses in that sense to lead God's people. But it is not the case that God has forgotten them in chapter 1. And that's the big thing we're going to see as we look through this chapter, that that God is at work in the lives of his people, working by his providence. It's a big theme of Exodus chapter 1. But what is God's providence? What are we speaking of here? Well, Well, God's providence is his control directed towards his good purposes. Our confession of faith as a church In chapter 5 and uh, the first paragraph, beginning of the second, reads as follows. It's all about divine providence. It says this, God who, in infinite power and wisdom, has created all things, upholds, directs, controls and governs them, both animate and inanimate, great and small, by a providence supremely wise and holy. And in accordance with his infathomable foreknowledge and the free and immutable decisions of his will, he fulfills the purposes for which he has created them, so that his wisdom, power, and justice, together with his infinite goodness and mercy, might be praised and glorified. And that means, start of the second paragraph, nothing happens by chance or outside the sphere of God's providence. The providence of God, God's care for his people, his sovereignty directed towards the care for his people, gives us the rock-solid foundation for confidence in our lives. Now, it doesn't mean that everything will go as we would hope or expect. It doesn't mean that everything will be easy, but it does mean that God is working out his plan in all things. So we're going to see three ways in which God is doing that in Exodus chapter 1. And the first is this, that God's providence is at work in guiding and blessing his people. And here we look at the first seven verses. 
Although many years have passed, the opening verses of Exodus are written by Moses in such a way as to deliberately link them back to the book of Genesis. There are a number of ways we see this. The first one isn't here for us in our English Bibles, but if we read it in the Hebrew, we would find the very first word of the book of Exodus is the word and. Now, for good reasons, our English translators don't do that in starting Exodus, because we know it's a very bad way of speaking grammatically in English to start the sentence with a conjunction. But it's a very deliberate thing in Hebrew to do that, because in doing that, what Moses is doing is he is saying Genesis and Exodus are tightly linked. They're not books to be separated in our minds. In fact, the story is flowing from Genesis into Exodus. Now we get another indication of this connection between Genesis to Exodus. In the opening phrase of uh, the first chapter, we read that these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. Now that phrase is an exact copy of what we find in Genesis 46 and verse 8, which is the beginning of the genealogy, the record of the sons of Jacob who go down to Egypt. So as Moses writes, and as Moses begins this book, he is deliberately linking it to what has happened in Genesis. He is saying the story is continuing through there, from there. And that's important because in those final chapters of the book of Genesis, there are so many significant markers of God's providential care for Jacob and his family. As he worked through Uh, the series uh, there at the end of Genesis, what we saw was that God was caring for his people in bringing them down to Egypt. The family moved to Egypt because God has told them to go there in Genesis 46, verses 3 and 5. He has moved them there to protect them from the famine that sweeps across the ancient Near East so that the family line of the Israelites will continue. And the preservation of this family line was the primary reason for all that happens in the life of Joseph. You know, sometimes we can, we can read the life of Joseph like it's a, an isolated character study in different attributes of the life of a believer. And there are things that we can learn from Joseph's life in that sense. But the big thing that's going on in the life of Joseph is that God is preserving the godly line so that Messiah can come from that line. Joseph doesn't know this at this time, but that was why God allowed his brothers to mistreat him as they did. That was why the Lord allowed Potiphar's wife to turn against him. That was why God allowed Joseph to be imprisoned in the prime of his life, to be forgotten there in prison, there by the cupbearer, so that at the right time, he could be called upon to interpret Pharaoh's dreams And to put plans in place to prepare for the famine, to protect Egypt, yes, but even more importantly, to protect his own family. So the great lesson from Joseph's life is God working out his plan to rescue Jacob's family so that the people of God might be preserved, so that Messiah could come from that line as he had said that would happen. And God has been working and guiding this family and this nation to this point. So it links to Exodus in that way. But also, think, friends, as we, as we think back to that story of the life of Joseph, 
And in light of all of the sin and sadness that was there in Jacob's family, isn't it a wonderful reminder of God's providential working that there in the first uh, four verses, you have all of the 12 sons of Jacob listed as coming down to Egypt. A family that is so fractured, a family that is so affected by sin, yet God keeps them together so that they are brought down to Egypt because they are restored there at the end of Genesis. And so in these opening verses, we are being reminded that Egypt isn't an accident, that God's been guiding them on their way to this point. So God has been providentially guiding them to Egypt and bringing them there as a family. But also, whilst they have been there, God has been at work, according to his providence, in blessing them as well. If you look down at verse 5, you will see that the descendants of Jacob who traveled to Egypt uh, were 70 in all. But now... Uh, Well, as we come to verse 7 at the start of the book, what do we read? That they have become exceedingly fruitful. They have multiplied in number and become so numerous that the land has been filled with them. So they're there in Egypt, and they have been incredibly fruitful. God has blessed them greatly. They have grown in number. Now, that description should make us think of something else we've heard already in God's Word in the book of Genesis. Sounds just like an echo of something we read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, where God had told Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it. And isn't it amazing to see God's word being fulfilled here in the lives of his people because they are filling the earth, they are multiplying greatly, they are becoming numerous because God is fulfilling his word in his promise there in creation. But hearing these words should also make us think of God's words to Abraham in Genesis 15, where God promised childless Abraham that he would have what? So many descendants that they would become as numerous as the stars in the sky. God is there fulfilling, working his promise, working to fulfill his promise to Abraham as well. So God has providentially guided his people to Egypt to preserve them there in that famine. And now, whilst they have been there, he has been providentially blessing them there in Egypt. And so the great focus of those first seven verses of Exodus is upon God's work in his people's lives in guiding them and blessing them to this point. And that is very important that the book starts that way. Because before we get into any of the trouble, of the suffering, and the hardship that is very real in Exodus, God wants them to remember that he has been at work in their lives in blessing them and keeping them and in guiding them. So that as they face the trials that are about to hit them, which are huge, aren't they? They will remember his goodness to them to this point. And seeing that pattern, pointing back to God's guiding hand and goodness, reminds us that's something we need to do too. That we need to look back and see all the ways in which God has been guiding and blessing us personally and his people to this point. There are troubles of the day. There are concerns for tomorrow. 
But as we think of those, we should not forget the providences of the past. I don't know about you, but I find that I'm too quick to engage my heart in worrying about today and worrying about tomorrow, and rarely do we engage our hearts in reflecting upon God's guidance in the past that has led us and blessed us to this point. Have you ever thought of this? I think of this often. Where would I be if God had not saved me? Where would you be? What might your life have been? How kind God has been in saving you. And maybe you've had a season in your life where you've been wandering away from the Lord and the Lord has brought you back. And you think, where would I be if God had not brought me back? And some of us can look back upon some of the hardest times in our lives and yet we know that without those times, we would be in a very different place to where we are today. But God guides and he blesses even through the hard things. Because as we reflect on how kind God has been to us in the past, that gives us great confidence for the future. So God's providence in guiding and blessing in the past is very important. We need to meditate on it. But then secondly, we see God's providence in the present. And here we come to verses 8 to 22. Because here we see... God's providence in preserving his people under great pressure. So we come to verse 8, and we see that a new king comes to power. And all that, that Joseph has done for Egypt doesn't mean anything to this new pharaoh. And so instead of seeing the presence of Joseph and Jacob's family among them as a privilege, what does Pharaoh see them as? Well, he sees them as a problem. And there in verses 9 to 12, Pharaoh builds up a classic narrative that leads to the oppression of a people group. He has four stages. Let's trace them through. He says, verse 9, they're different. They're not Egyptians. How did he describe them? He describes them as Israelites. They're different from us. Then he moves on and he says, well, they're dangerous, verse 10. They have become too numerous, and they might fight against us if a war broke out. Now, let's be clear. There is no evidence that the Israelites had this kind of intent, but he just makes it up, saying they're dangerous. So they're different, they're dangerous. Then he says he gets the Egyptians in verse 12 to see that they're dreadful, or to think that they're dreadful. End of verse 12, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Now, that word dread in the Hebrew, is, it's much stronger than that. Dread's a bit light. It's better translated as hatred. So you go from different to dangerous to dreadful or hated. And then verse 10, what does he say? They need dealing with. We need a plan to address the threat that they present. And Pharaoh has three different strategies that he works through in these verses to try to limit the numbers of the Israelites. The first strategy is there in verses 11 to 14, where you have enforced slavery. He puts slave masters over them to oppress them and to force them to to work to build up cities for the Egyptians. Now, the word here, oppress, is completely proper. Because what is going on is physical oppression. Now, now we live in days where people speak of oppression as something that oppressed people can perceive. 
So you can be said to oppressing some, be oppressing someone by just disagreeing with them. But that is not what is going on here. This is not how God uses the word. Here it refers, rightly so, to physical oppression. And there are many words to describe just how bad this oppression was there in verses 11 to 14. It was, verse 11, forced labor. Verse 13, they were worked ruthlessly. Then lives were made, verse 14, bitter with harsh labor. So you have this enforced slavery. But that doesn't seem to work, and so then Pharaoh goes to plan two. And plan two is far more horrible because it's this concealed infanticide. Verses 15 to 21. Through the king's instructions to the Hebrew midwives that they are to murder the Hebrew baby boys. And it seems that what he was asking them to do here is in those moments following birth... When their mothers were recovering, the midwives were instructed to end the lives of these little ones, probably in a way that made it appear that they had died during labor. And that doesn't work, and so he goes for number three, and it's there in verse 22. It's open infanticide, where instructions are given that every Egyptian is to throw every Hebrew boy born into the Nile. It's horrible just to read about it, isn't it, friends? The steps he goes through in this organized oppression of Israel. And it says a lot about the wickedness of Pharaoh and the wickedness of the Egyptians. If you want to measure the moral compass of a nation, just look at how it treats those unable to defend themselves, particularly the young and the unborn. And it's a very serious thing that in our country along with many others, we do so little to protect the unborn and instead fund their death. That should concern us as Christians, I think, more than it does at times. We should see it as significant when we think and we pray about major national events like elections, like new national leaders. But Pharaoh's targeting of the Israelites is a part of a wider battle that is playing out through the pages of Scripture. And we need to see this because it's not just um, on the, 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 the events are, are horrible, but it's part of this bigger, bigger battle that's playing out. Because it was said that Pharaoh had a sign of a snake on his crown which is fitting because his attack upon the people of God is flowing out of a conflict that goes back to a great conflict that began in the Garden of Eden. Because this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, working out through history, where God had said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the spiritual offspring of the serpent, that is Satan, is fighting here against the offspring of the woman. And Satan wants to wipe out the male Israelites because that stops the godly line and brings an end to Israel. And that would mean there can be no future male offspring who would be able to crush his head. It's a bigger conflict that's working out. But Pharaoh's plans fail, don't they? And in fact, 
the exact opposite of what he intends comes about. And I think the Lord is very deliberate in doing this. As Pharaoh tries to limit their numbers, what does God do? God blesses them and they get bigger in number, showing his power and his providence. So, verse 11, having put them under those slave masters with this enforced slavery, what do we read? That the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. God blesses his people even when they're under pressure. And then in verse 17, when the Hebrew midwives were told by Pharaoh to kill those children just when they were born, what do we read? Well, they won't carry out the king's plan, but instead, the people increase in number. Verse 20, they become even more numerous. And this is what always happens, that when Satan targets the people of God, such that he plans to restrict their growth, that always fails. Because when pressure comes upon God's people, they don't get squashed, they grow. Because God works to preserve his people under pressure. Now you can go and find specific examples of this through history again and again and again. But here's one I read of this week. In Ethiopia, in the 1970s, the president there killed, they think, around half a million people under what was called the Red Terror Programme. And as a part of that wider oppression, church buildings were closed and many Christians were killed also. And going through all that, in the months that the church went through that in Ethiopia, people feared what would happen to the church. However, Christians continued to meet in secrets. And rather than being a small number at the end, the church had grown during the troubles. God had blessed his people even when they're under pressure. And if you look at the history of the church, you see that again and again. In the Soviet Union, you see that's what happened. Under communism in China, that is what has happened. And it happens again and again that God's providence protects his people under pressure. Now, we see God's providence here working in protecting his people and in guarding them from this harm. But we also see God's providence here in this chapter in the hard things that happen to God's people as well. Because, of course, whilst the Lord protects his people from that plan to put, a death, put to death the, uh, the Hebrew boys there in what Pharaoh says to the midwives, and there later in what seems to happen to the Hebrews in general, the Lord allows them to go through the slavery and oppression that comes under Pharaoh. And God even uses the hardship of Pharaoh to bring his people home and to further his plan for them. Because if all had remained peaceful in Egypt, then the Israelites would have had no occasion to leave. And Moses would have had even more problems than he did in trying to lead them out and stop them from going back. I think very often as we think of God's providence, we think of God's providence only being at work in the good things in our lives. And we forget that it's also at work in the hard things we experience as well. So we say God's providence is, and it is, that we have a near miss in the car. That's true. God's providence is that he opens a door and we have a promotion at work. That we do well on our exams and we go to that degree course that we've hoped for. But we should also remember God's providence is at work in the hard things in our lives as well. Here, just like he's at work in the oppression that comes in Pharaoh and the hardship the Israelites experience, God is working in that as well. So he's at work when we lose our job. 
He's at work when we get that hard diagnosis that is hard to hear. He's at work when we miss out on the exams and we end up going to a different university than we planned or perhaps not to university as we had planned. And in the moment as we experience that, very understandably, we have no idea what God is doing. And so what do we do? We trust that God is in control. We have confidence he is working out his good plan in all things. Let's think a bit further about the hardship of the Lord's people here and what God is doing in that. He is stopping them from becoming too comfortable in Egypt, and that is furthering his plan. But he is also protecting them from another danger there in Egypt. Because alongside the danger of extinction, the other danger in Egypt is assimilation. Because having spent centuries there, there was a real danger the people of God would intermarry and become in life just like the Egyptians, to be absorbed into them. If you look through history, there are very few examples of a people group moving to a new country and maintaining a separate identity to that nation for centuries. Very rare that happens. Almost always they get absorbed into that country. And here the Lord uses even the enslavement of his people to protect them from that. Because they're kept as a separate people. They don't intermarry in that sense. Now that doesn't make God the author of their sinful enslavement. But it does show us that God works even in that to fulfill his purposes. And there are times when God uses even the persecution of his people to protect them against assimilation into into an ungodly culture. And that might be what God is doing in our day. Perhaps as we think of how it may be harder for us as Christians in the future, part of God's purpose could be to preserve us from an increasingly sinful culture by bringing persecution and trouble so that we stay separate. But whatever our concerns are for the church today or in the future, we should never worry that trouble will destroy the church because God's providence works to preserve his people under pressure. We don't build the church, Jesus does. We don't preserve the church, Jesus does. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So knowing God's providential care in the past, trusting in God's providential care in the present, helps us to stand personally as well. And that's the third thing we come to. Because here we thirdly see God's providence in preserving his people when they make a stand. Here we look at verses 15 through to 22. And we turn now to the the personal challenge that's here faced by the Hebrew midwives. Now in verse 15, they are named for us Shipra and Pua. Now, it's significant that they are the first named characters in all the generations of the Israelites who followed the 12 sons of Jacob. And isn't it remarkable that their identities are preserved even when Pharaoh's name isn't? 
The king of Egypt isn't giving a specific name, but these two Hebrew midwives' names are preserved, and that is because they show great bravery in disobeying the command of the king to kill the Hebrew boys. They know that the authority of any king is limited. And although God has put him in that position, that doesn't mean they obey him in everything. God is above Pharaoh, and he cannot command them to do what God has told them they must not do. And these two women are the first of five brave women in the first few chapters in Exodus. And they stand against the command of Pharaoh, which is so wicked. But then what about their words in verse 19? Maybe as you read them, they struck you. And these words in verse 19 are the subject of much discussion and debate. Because when Pharaoh realizes they have not been obeying him, he summons them and he asks them why they have let the boys live. And we read, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Now, those verses are significant because for some, they're a key text in a discussion about whether it's ever right to tell a lie to protect the life of another. And I think we should talk about that briefly because there's a key verse that people discuss in this area. There are two issues for us to think about. First of all, do they actually tell a lie? And then secondly... Is a lie ever justified? Now, some think that their response to Pharaoh is a lie. That is Calvin's view. That's Augustine's view. They think that they have lied to Pharaoh, and they think their lie was definitely wrong. So for Calvin and Augustine, even though these women showed courage in their actions in disobeying Pharaoh, they sinned in how they spoke to him in response to his question. Others agree that it was a lie, but they say it was justified since Pharaoh was an enemy and he didn't have a right to the truth. Now, it's right, it's true that Pharaoh didn't have the right to the truth here, but that doesn't mean they needed to tell Pharaoh a lie in their response because there are always other options rather than lying. However, I don't think it is clear that their answer is deceitful. It could have been true that they didn't make it to the births soon enough. And so perhaps they let the Hebrew boys live by instructing the mothers to call them late. So they arrived once the babies had been born. Or perhaps the mothers heard about Pharaoh's instructions and decided not to call the midwives themselves. And if that's true then their response was truthful as well. I think the bigger question is whether it's ever right to tell a lie. And the Bible teaches that it's never right to sin for the sake of a greater good, like preserving life. The scriptures are very clear that there is always a way of escape such that we don't sin. So in situations where we're asked a hard question... We're saying everything we know could have bad consequences for others. We always have the option of saying nothing, don't we? Even if that might mean bad consequences for us. Or we have the option of not saying everything we know without telling a lie. 
because someone doesn't have the right to know everything that we do. So I don't think the response of the midwives here either justifies lying or is necessarily a lie. God's word commands us to tell the truth. So let's come back to the passage and let's see what is specifically commended about these midwives. Now twice in verses 17 and 21, we read that they feared God. They feared God. And that is the key thing for us to note about them. That however powerful Pharaoh was, and he was, they didn't fear him more than the Lord. Now, don't forget just how powerful Pharaoh is. And don't forget just how vulnerable the midwives are. He is a king operating with absolute rule. There is no right to a trial by the jury of your peers in the court of Pharaoh. There is no right to appeal at all. And even though they stand there commanded by one of the most powerful men on planet Earth at that time, they don't give in. They show great courage. And why is that? It's because of their fear of the Lord. They feared the Lord. And when we think about situations when we might be under pressure to compromise, we can be tempted to focus upon the other person and try to come up with reasons why we shouldn't fear them as much as we do. So as we think about the fear of God versus the fear of man, we perhaps lower the other person in our sight and we think of all the things that make the reasons we shouldn't fear them. But then, of course, people can do things to make themselves even more fearful. And what we're being reminded of here is that a biblical approach is to seek to grow in our fear of God. Because as we do that, however powerful people might seem, we will not compromise because we fear God more. William Gunnell puts it like this. We fear men so much because we fear God so little. And Christians, the reality is that Christians are finding themselves in situations where they are placed under pressure to compromise over the commandments of God more and more. The pressure is coming in the workplace, the pressure is coming in schools and in universities. And we might think, I can't refuse, I'll lose my job. If I don't go on with it, I'll be thrown off the course and I'll have no future. And some of those things have happened to Christians, and they might happen to us. And to address those fears, to stand firm and not compromise, we need to build up our fear of God. Because as we fear God, we'll be helped to remember that it would be worse to disobey God than to disobey man, whatever the consequences. So these godly women are a great example to us because they teach us a right fear of God. And the Lord honors them in their stance. In his providence, he protects them because Pharaoh doesn't punish them. And because they fear God, they are blessed with families of their own. Verse 21. Now sometimes... That is our experience in this life. God does honor our stand for him, but it's not always promised. And we should always stand with courage, whatever might happen. 
So what helps us to build that courage? What helps us to build our fear of God? Well, surely it's remembering God's providential care for his people already. That kind of fear of the Lord that has this big view of God that sees the seriousness of disobeying him is built up through daily reflection on all that God has done in our lives. So what we need to be doing is reflecting on our past and seeing God's good hand at work. And that will give us confidence to trust God as we obey him. And friends, as we do that, we will see that we have even greater reasons to trust and fear God than these women did. Because we have seen God work out his plan of salvation right through from Genesis 3 verse 15. We have seen God do all things well for his people. Nothing has derailed it. Satan has taken his best weapons and fired his biggest guns at the plan of God. And nothing has stopped it. He's raised up evil rulers like Pharaoh. He's put God's people into slavery. He has sought to to kill the, the sons of the Israelites through infanticide. Later on, he will send legions of chariots against them, and he will do even more than that. But none of it has been successful, because Christ has come. Christ has defeated sin and death and Satan. And friends, that's what gives us courage to stand that God's providence is at work in fulfilling his plan, and so I can trust him in all things. So, brothers and sisters, this is a, a challenging book, Exodus. It gives us challenging examples of faithfulness to God, but it's all grounded in confidence in the providence of God. And may that be our confidence as well.